If you would, take your Bible and open to Joshua chapter 11. We're continuing our study of the book of Joshua. We're going to do Joshua 11 this week. And then when we get into the new year, we're going to take the concepts from the end of Joshua and we're going to transfer that to a study of 1 Corinthians. So in some sense, this will be our last Sunday morning formally studying Joshua. We're going to move the rest of Joshua to Wednesday nights, beginning in January, heading through the spring. But what we've learned in Joshua will be the foundation for what we do on Sunday mornings starting in 2018. So it's all meant to... Uh, tie together as, as God leads us. So we'll be in the end of Joshua 11. A couple of heads up about the end of the service today. As we wrap up the sermon today, we're going to take the Lord's Supper, celebrating that part of following Christ together. And so at the end of my sermon, I'll have our deacons and those who are helping to hand out the Lord's Supper elements. They'll come and, and get in position. At the same time, those who are a part of our choir and worship team will come at the same time as the deacons because they're going to be singing for us one of the songs from last Sunday while we pass out the elements. It's a time of reflection on the victory of Christ, the hope we have in Christ, and so while the Lord's Supper is being passed out, we'll be able to worship together. Then we'll sing a final psalm in celebration, and after that final psalm, we'll head over and, and have lunch together. So I just want you to have a heads up of where we're going this morning. Studying God's Word together thinking about the concept of rest, Lord's Supper, reflecting on that victory as the choir sings, we'll sing together and then we'll have a chance to eat and, and minister together after that. So that's, that's where we're headed. Before I start today, thinking about our topic, and our topic today is rest, peace. What does that look like around the uh, Christmas holidays? We've Purposely, David has led us to sing songs about rest. The little church that I grew up in, in southwest Oklahoma, that I've told many of you about, uh, green carpet on the floor, wood panelings on the, wall, on the wall, those wooden signs at the front that told you how many people attended last week, last year, 10 years ago, you know, all the, that, that was the little church. And we had a, a deacon in the church who would often get up to pray uh, sometime during the service, and before he prayed, he would always, always say, let's just have a moment of silence together. Let's just have a moment of rest and reflection. And as a kid, I couldn't tell you a word of what that gentleman prayed. I knew he was one of the preeminent deacons in our church, and we all looked up to him and saw him as a model. But the only thing I remember about him is that every time before he prayed, there was a moment of silence, of quiet. And the more I've reflected on that, the more I've seen the wisdom in what he was trying to do for us as a church. That in our lives, we go from activity to activity. You lead busy lives. You have a lot on your minds. You come in here. It's nobody's fault, but everybody comes in here with a hundred things on your mind. I've sat many, many times exactly where you are trying to listen to somebody and you have all these things swirling around in your heart and your mind. And it is good for us to know rest and silence and peace. And we're going to talk from God's word this morning about what that looks like coming from Christ. But before we do that, and before I pray, I just want to give us a chance to have a time of silence. If you would, bow your heads with me. Use this moment to 
to take a deep breath, to reflect on the goodness of God, to think about the need for rest and peace and stability in your own heart. Father, I know in my own life, uh, even being someone who is an introvert and likes that time by myself and times of quiet, times of quiet doesn't always mean that my mind is quiet or my heart is quiet. Uh, So many times, mind racing, heart anxious, Father, thank you for the gift of rest and peace and stability. Something that we don't manufacture on our own uh, is a gift from you that comes through Christ by the power of your spirit. God, teach us more from scripture this morning what that looks like, what that means, how we can live that out. Father, I pray that rest and peace and stability would be a sign of hope and love to the world around us. So God, we come together to worship you through studying your word, through taking the Lord's Supper, through singing together, through praying together. And Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, Joshua 11, and we're gonna skip to the end of that chapter. Uh, Most of Joshua 11 is about more conquests that Joshua is doing in the northern part of the land. So chapter 10, he's focused on the southern part. Chapter 11, he's mainly up in the north. But look at the end of chapter 11, starting in verse 21. Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and from all the country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the, in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza and Gath and in Ashdod did some remain. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. Okay, back there in verse 21. A couple of things I'd want to point out to you in verse 21. It says that Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim, or Anakim, depending on how you deal with that I at the end there. But uh, he cut off. The word cut off, if you are a Bible highlighter or a Bible underliner, the phrase or the word cut off there is, is a key phrase because it's been used throughout the book of Joshua. When the people were coming into the promised land, Several times it says that the water was cut off in the Jordan so that the people were able to pass through. It talks about in chapter 7 with the sin of Achan that the fear of the people is that they would be cut off from God. 
The phrase cut off is the same phrase that's used for making a covenant. Not cutting off a covenant, but cutting off in the sense of cutting around a piece of paper to make an agreement. Cut off here is the same word that you find throughout Joshua for making a covenant with other people or making a covenant with God. So the fact that the word cut off or the phrase cut off shows up here at the end of chapter 11 is actually a key marker that says this is one of the key passages in Joshua. This is one of the key themes throughout the Bible. It says specifically that they were cut off the Anakim from the hill country. Now that phrase or that reference there to the Anakim may not mean a lot to you, but it is a phrase that shows up several times in reference to God leading his people into the promised land. It's even the group of people that Goliath is tied to. This group of people that's being referenced here would later be connected to the Philistines, connected to Goliath, and that whole story playing such an important role in holy war in the Old Testament. How do we make sense of that concept that, that strikes us as so wrong, but we see the way that the Lord uses that and the way that the David and Goliath story frames that for Scripture to make sense of how God is coming to rescue his people from empires. He's coming to bring hope to his people. There's a couple of places in the Bible that the Anakim show up, and I want to show you a couple of examples. Numbers chapter 13 Numbers chapter 13, this is one of the first times that the people are preparing to go into the promised land. It says the spies brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying the land through which we have gone to spy is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people we saw in it are of great height. And then in verse 33 it says, There we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who came from the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. The sons of Anak, who would be the Anakim. In this situation, in Numbers chapter 13, remember they had sent 12 spies into the promised land. Two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, came back and said, yeah, let's go. That's where God is leading us. God's going to take care of us. Ten of the spies came back and said, we don't want to go into there. Those guys are huge. Have you seen what we're up against? There's no way we want to go in there. And so ultimately, the people don't trust God. They draw back, and their fear of the Anakim is part of what caused the people to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, waiting for Moses to ultimately hand off to Joshua to lead them into the promised land. Deuteronomy chapter 9 is another place that mentions the Anakim. Deuteronomy chapter 9 Moses says to the people, right as they're on the verge of finally going in the promised land, when he's going to hand it off to Joshua, and the people are going to go in, Deuteronomy 9, Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today to go into dispossessed nations greater and mightier than you, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, whom you know and whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? But look what Moses says to them there in verse 3. Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you, so you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. Moses says, yes, I know the people look huge, I know they look strong, I know they look mighty, but God has always promised that he would lead you into the land. And finally, here in Joshua chapter 11, 
you see the people coming up against the Anakim, and they finally defeat them. Now, the ultimate defeat wouldn't happen until David fights Goliath, but this is a preview. This is showing the work that God is doing among his people. So look there again in Joshua 11, if you still have your phone open, or you still have your Bible open there to Joshua 11. Look there in verse 23. It says in verse 23 that Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. That first sentence of verse 23 is meant to be a summary of the first half of Joshua. So the way that verse 23 works in the book of Joshua here is it is a hinge. It's a turning point in the book. That first half is technically going to go through verse or chapter 12. Some people cut it off at chapter 11. Most take it through verse 12, I mean chapter 12. But this verse here in 11:23, it's meant to be a summary that Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. That's what happens in the first half of Joshua. The second sentence in verse 23, it says, Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to all their tribal allotments. That sentence is a summary of the second half of the book of Joshua. So in verse 23, you have the first half of the book and the second half of the book summarized in two sentences on purpose. And then you have a summary sentence at the very end where it says, the land had rest from war. It's hard to overlook the importance of that sentence for understanding God's plan for his people in the Old Testament, uh, but also in the New Testament, all that God was going to do for his people. It says that the land had rest from war. God's plan from Genesis chapter 1 is that his people would live in his land and they would experience peace. Sometimes we call that shalom, that full peace. And that they would flourish, that they would be fruitful, that they would live lives that mattered, that make an impact. God's plan for his people is that they would live in his land and that they would experience peace, a relationship with him, and that they would be able to overcome any enemies that would come against them. So the whole creation story is built around this idea of the land had rest. But we know it doesn't always stay like that. That sin comes in and it says the land becomes difficult to work. That Adam and those that follow him have to work the earth. That Eve experiences pain in childbirth. That the land no longer has rest. Something is wrong in the world. Romans chapter 8 verse 22 says all creation is groaning, waiting for God to make everything right. And so God's plan for his people is that he would not only rescue his people, but that he would also bring peace to his land, that his world would be what he created it to be. Um, there's a good way, there's a good healthy way that you take that Christian idea, that biblical idea, and you tie it to our stewardship of the environment. Sometimes Christians have been the worst about how they have treated God's land. God's plan for his people is that they would live fully in his world, live in his land so that the land would have rest. Another way that this plays out in the Old Testament is it plays out through the temple that would be built, the sanctuary that would be built. In 1 Kings chapter 8, when Solomon is dedicating the temple and the sanctuary, one of the things that he says is the reason that temple is able to be established is because the people had rest 
from war. When they were at war, they weren't able to build the temple. They weren't able to come before the Lord and worship the way that he wanted them to because they were constantly fighting these battles. But in 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon says, we're building this temple because we're in a situation of rest. God's plan for the Sabbath is that his people would know rest. One of the reasons that you have the Sabbath, and specifically the Sabbath year, and the year of Jubilee in the Old Testament, is not only that God's people would rest, but the land would have rest. We live in a world where we constantly try to get more and more and more from the land in a way that God never created the land to produce in that way. That God's plan for his people, God's plan for his world, that there would be times of rest so that we could recover, so that we could know him, so we could experience his love and his work in our lives. And so here in Joshua 11 is a picture of God's promise that the land would have rest. But it wasn't the final picture. And it wasn't the perfect picture. Because you don't have to read very far past Joshua 11 to find out that the people still don't understand rest. They're still fighting battles. They're still disobeying God. They're still dealing with unbelief. And so that takes us to a very important connection passage in your Bible. It's Hebrews chapter 4. Take your phone, take your Bible, and go to Hebrews chapter 4. Because what happens is in Hebrews chapter 4, the author of Hebrews is going to hook back to Joshua 11, verse 23. And he's going to tie together this concept of rest and God's salvation. And he's going to show how Joshua could never ultimately fulfill that. It would only ultimately be fulfilled through Jesus. If you don't have a copy of the Bible in front of you, you don't have the Bible on your phone, these verses that I'm about to look at are actually printed on the back of your bulletin. So if you got one of those bulletins coming in and you don't have access and it's a little bit hard to see the screens, I wanted you to see these verses because what we have to do to understand Joshua 11 is we have to tie it together with what's happening in Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4 Let me start in verse 8. We're going to jump around in Hebrews 4 just a little bit in the next few minutes. But Hebrews chapter 4, verse 8. If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. A couple of things to see in those verses. The word Joshua in the Greek language that shows up in your New Testament, the word Joshua is the exact same that you would find for Jesus. So there's a purposeful play on words going on here. The author wants you to think Joshua because of the connection to the land having rest in the Old Testament. But at the same time, think Jesus because Jesus is going to be able to bring that rest in a way that Joshua never could. The author makes the point in verse 8, if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. You might say, where did God speak of another day? What the author is doing here in Hebrews is he's bringing in Psalm 95. If your Bible has those footnotes, or sometimes in your phone you can click on that little uh, hyperlink footnote, and it might give you some more information. There's a connection here going Joshua 11, 
Psalm 95, Hebrews chapter 4. God's final plan for rest for his people was not fulfilled by Joshua in Joshua 11 because God continued to point his people toward a day of rest. He said, today, do not turn away from me because rest is available. Where would that rest come from? Well, ultimately, it would come through Christ. When you think about rest in the New Testament, this is one of those concepts that we use that phrasing already, not yet. If you've been a part of Emmaus for a while, you know that I use this and it, it looks like it's my only New Testament thing I have to teach, but it just makes so much sense when you think about the way Scripture works. Already, not yet. When you think about the rest that God meant to give his people, it is already available in Christ. Two verses that point to this that, that would be helpful for you. The first comes out of Matthew uh, chapter 8, no, chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. On the cross, John 19 says that Jesus proclaimed, it is finished. Here's what I want you to know about this. In Christ, we are meant to have perfect rest. That you are not clamoring to make yourself right with God. You are not worried about whether you are advancing past another person or you're better than another person. You're not saying maybe one day I'll reach a point where I'll be right with God. The proclamation of the New Testament is that it is possible to have rest in Christ. That you can take a deep breath and say my identity, my foundation in life is found in Jesus Christ because of who he is and what he has done for me. Jesus doesn't say, come to me, get your act together, and then maybe you'll be okay. He says, come to me. It is finished. You can have rest. Which means in a world where people are always comparing themselves to one another, where they're always wondering if they've done enough, where they're always frantically trying to get a little further ahead, you rest. And you rest in Christ, not what you have done, not what you have brought to the table, but who Jesus is and what he has done for you. And so part of that proclamation of the New Testament is already in your life, you can take a deep breath. You can rest. But that doesn't mean that we have yet experienced all of the rest that God has for us. That's why we talk about already, not yet. Already, I have rest in Christ. This past week, I have not rested particularly well. Is Jesus' promise not full? Did somehow Jesus come up short? No. We live in a world that constantly tests that rest. We live in a world that constantly tests that peace. We live in a world that constantly tests that stability. And so we can say, already, I have rest in Christ. Not yet have I experienced all that that rest is meant to be. Because 
Look at the next slide about that rest that is to come. We know there's an element of this rest that we have not yet experienced. The author of Hebrews in chapter 4 verse 11, he says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. In Hebrews, and this is a difficult concept for, for Baptists especially, but in the book of Hebrews, that rest that he talks about is primarily Hear me primarily, not only, but it's primarily a future reality that we continue to strive toward. There is no room in the New Testament for saying, ah, I can rest in Christ, therefore I'll do whatever I want to. I'll live however I want to, I'll operate however I want to, I'll believe however I want to, I'll just do whatever I want to because I'm resting in Christ. The New Testament would say, no, you, you don't understand what it really means to rest in Christ because you have not yet experienced all that God has for you. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. What rest is he talking about? Revelation 21, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. One day, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Do you know that crying makes you physically tired? <laughs> when you mourn, when you cry, when you hurt alongside one another, you just feel your body exhausted. Those two things go together, mourning and physical exhaustion. And, and those of you that are walking through that right now know that better than anybody else, how that goes together. Death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. In the New Testament, there is a promise for rest right now. Not Joshua defeating the Anakim, but Jesus defeating sin and death. That you can have rest right now. But know that not yet have you experienced all that that rest is going to be. And so God continues to say, strive for that. Trust in me, believe in me, obey me. I'm leading you toward that perfect rest. Now, with that kind of foundation in place, let's step back for a second. I want to give you three things that can steal that rest or can take that rest away. What, what are the enemies of rest? So someone who is not a Christian, what are those things that can stand in the way of experiencing that rest in Christ? If you are a Christian, what stands in the way of experiencing the fullness of Christ's rest? Why are you so anxious? Why do you not have that peace and that stability? What, what stands in the way of that? Hebrews chapter 4 really gives us three things. The first is fear. Fear will, will kill your rest. Um, those of you who have small children who have maybe like a nightmare, that kills everybody's rest. Not just the child's, but the whole household, the parents. Uh, I remember in college, we were gonna go with some friends to uh, a friend's lake house, spend the weekend there. So we get to the lake house, and apparently no one's been to this lake house in a very, very long time. In my mind, we were going to some like mansion on Lake Texoma, uh, but we went to a lake house, also known as a lake hut. Um, and uh, we pull up there, and he's like, hey, Owen, you and, uh, you and this other guy, you guys are going to sleep, sleep on this uh, pull-out bed, this pull-out sofa. Yeah. Hundreds of dead spiders and bugs as we pull out this, this bed. As you lay down to rest, like, you know that they're not alive, but they still manage to crawl all over you because 
in your mind, you're just like, ah, oh, I saw that, and now I'm going to, how do I, re- I did not sleep very much that night, because you just feel things crawling all over you that aren't really crawling over you, but it doesn't matter, because it still feels like it's crawling all over you, and you're, you're afraid. Fear kills rest. What does the scripture say about that? John 16, verse 33. Jesus says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I always think about that story in Mark 4. They're out on the boat, big storm around. What's Jesus doing? He's sleeping. Everybody else is panicked. They're so afraid because of what they see and what they're experiencing around them, and Jesus is sleeping. Why? Because he's, con- he's in control of the wind and the waves. He says, peace, be still. And the people are overcome. You may be at a time in your life that you are not resting well because of fear. Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble. Yes, there'll be things that would honestly seem to make you afraid. Take heart, I've overcome the world. Connected to fear is the idea of unbelief. Unbelief is another thing that will cause us to fear. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2, it says, Good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. We'll never fully experience the rest that God has for us when we don't believe that God really loves us, that God's really with us, that God really does command the winds and the waves, that God really has taken care of everything that we need, that we don't have to be anxious, but we really can come to him in prayer, knowing that he gives peace that passes all understanding. Lack of belief causes lack of rest, because you're always searching, you're always wondering. Now, let me, let me be really clear about this. I've tried to be really transparent with you. I'm a person who struggles a lot with doubts. Um, Every degree I get in education, I have more questions and less answers. Um, And and so you just, I struggle with those questions. I think about those themes. I go back to that guy in Mark 9 who said, I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus, I believe that you are good. I believe you're loving. I've got a thousand questions and a hundred uncertainties, but what I can do is I can come before you and say, I believe, I trust you. And when we say that, belief in the New Testament is not a one-time concept. It's an ongoing, everyday reliance on the goodness and grace of the Father who loves you. And when you do that, you're able to rest. Psalm 127, it says, hey, don't work all the time. Lay your head down, wake back up, because God is in control. He has everything under control. Unbelief will kill your rest. Here's the third thing that will kill your rest, disobedience. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11, a little bit later in that chapter, it says, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Not believing that Jesus is Lord, not giving yourself to God's plans will lead to unrest. We could stand up 
and have testimony after testimony, story after story this morning of, I didn't follow God's plan for my life. It led me down a road that required a lot more work and trouble than if I had just obeyed God initially in what he was leading me to do. Uh, one of the guys I worked for in high school and college, he would get so upset at us because he would say, come on guys, you have to learn how to work smarter, not harder. Your failure to do what I tell you to do is causing you to work three times as hard as if you would just do what I told you to do the first time. And that's what God says to his people over and over again. When you obey me, when you follow my word, it leads to a path of peace and rest. When you go your own direction, life gets five times, ten times harder. It's, you, you're, in, you're bringing so much trouble in yourself. Work smarter, do what I tell you, not harder, go in your own direction. Fear Unbelief, disobedience will kill rest in our lives. How do we experience rest? We're going to wrap up with these three things. These are the three Emmaus words, up, in, and out. How do I experience this rest? My heart is anxious. My home is chaos. My workplace is a mess. My mind runs 100 miles an hour with all these problems and questions how do I experience that rest that I know that I have in Christ? Number one, worship. Worshiping the Lord, putting your mind and your heart and your focus on him throughout the week, and then gathering together with the people of God is meant to be a gift of rest. Now, I'll be the first to admit, and I have to take full responsibility for this, Sometimes the way church is done is not the most restful. And, and that's on the leadership and on, that's on us coming together as the body. Worship, remember 1 Kings 8? The temple was established because the people had rest. Worship should be a gift of rest in your life. Some of you are so busy during the week. You have so many things going on that everything inside you says, I do not have time to gather with the people of God for worship. You're not saying that as a rejection of Jesus. You're not saying that as a rejection of your faith. You are just so tired. The idea of gathering with people to worship seems like another burden added onto your plate. Can I say that when we worship in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit, this is not something added to your plate. This is your plate. This is where you come to remember the gospel. This is where you're gathered around people that say, you're not alone. We're in this together. If we're doing church in such a way that it's not restful, we've got to look deep inside our own hearts and say, God, what are we not doing here that doesn't match, doesn't match your word? I just want you to know that one of the paths that God has laid out for us to experience rest is the gift of worship. And, and that doesn't just happen on Sunday mornings. Don't get me wrong. It happens throughout your week. It happens in so many different opportunities. But this is meant to be an avenue to experience God's rest in our life. Number two would be discipleship. At Emmaus we say in, I-N, but, but discipleship. One of the ways in the New Testament, and I would even go so far as to say the main way in the New Testament that you grow in your faith is by resting. Here's what I mean by that. Jesus says in John 15, if you want to be a really productive person and grow as a Christian, you know how you do that? Abide. Abide in me. Rest in me. Our minds tell us if 
I don't do X, Y, and Z all the time, I'm not going to grow in my faith. Jesus says, if you want to know how to grow in your faith, just abide in me. Rest in me. Come to me. Spend time with me. Those spiritual disciplines of prayer and scripture and service and solitude, that those are the avenue to experience that rest. And to know that we do that together, that achieving this rest, finding this hope, is not something you do on your own. We need times on our own, but it's a group project. How do you grow? How do you learn? Abide. Rest. Finally, number three, out or, or missions, if you like that, uh, that word better. Rest, peace, matters for missions. Uh, one of my good friends in Mississippi, who was about my age, he talked about how he was trying to reach out to people in his neighborhood with the gospel. And there was this one guy in particular who didn't want anything to do with Jesus, didn't want anything to do with church or faith or anything like that, but my friend had struck up a relationship with him there in their neighborhood. And this friend said, I'm kind of curious about your faith, but you never have any time to talk to me about it because you're always at church or at work. And my friend said, ooh, what an indictment of my spirituality that all he knows of me is that I'm at work and at church and my lack of rest, my lack of peace, my lack of actually being in my neighborhood has formed a barrier for me to be able to talk to this person about the gospel. It's possible in church to be so busy with things here, so busy with worship and discipleship, that we cut ourselves off from what God has called us to do in missions and making disciples. Rest, peace, stability, margin in your schedule, margin in your life, that is the avenue to being able to do missions. One of the ways you do this is through hospitality, through gathering people in your home, gathering people around your table. Remember that hospitality is about a table of peace, not a table of perfection. Sometimes we think, I can never have anybody into my life because, man, I, my house just doesn't look like everybody else's house. And It's not about that. It's about, is this a place of peace? People in our world are desperate to gather in a home of peace, to gather in a place of rest. I had a good friend growing up who spent a lot of time at our house. I never knew why. Turns out his house was chaos. His parents' marriage was a mess. He just wanted to be at our house because it was a place of rest. He could come and relax. He could come and know that there was stability there. Rest doesn't get in the way of missions. Rest is an avenue to missions because you are showing a busy, frantic, overwhelmed world what it looks like to rest in Christ.